Good evening. I think it was back in June, Viv and I were having a little flurry of text messages, as you do, you know, keeping up, how are things, how are you, chat, chat. And um, <clears throat> one from Viv, chat, chat, lots of love, kiss, kiss. P.S. Minor alarm bell. P.S. And I quote, have you ever publicly shared your testimony? Do you like speaking? Now, major alarm bell, no, and not really. So, of course, I texted straight back to Viv, more chat, lots of love, kiss, kiss, completely ignored the PS, Um, which didn't go unnoticed, actually. And I might have got away with it, except that I made the huge mistake of phoning Viv a few days later and bit of deft manoeuvring from Viv and a big poke in the ribs from God, um, <clears throat> here I am rather out of my comfort zone. And I guess one feels a bit vulnerable telling your own story. I mean, I think my response to Viv was, well, you know, do you really think I have anything of interest to share? Um, <clears throat> and her reply was, well, let's see. You're adopted into a vicarage household, I might add, which was a challenge in itself. You lost your mother when you were 17. You had a difficult relationship with your stepmother. You've experienced an unhappy marriage, and you've been through divorce. Okay, so perhaps there was a little bit to share after all. Um, John Eldridge, Christian author, when he was working on his autobiography, said he felt an inward blush, you know, as if anybody cares or should care. But it also seemed to him that actually no matter who you are, if you, if you tell your own story with sufficient candour, it, it will be an interesting story and it will resonate with, with others. Um, okay, so to start at the beginning, I was adopted as a six-week-old baby into a vicarage family. Um, <clears throat> my father was an army officer in the Second World War um, and he committed himself to full-time ministry Um, when he survived the war, and and in particular when he survived the D-Day landings, um, when he'd lost so many of his own friends and and comrades. Um, And that meant going back to theological college at a time when there weren't any married quarters, so my mother went back to live with her parents while he studied. And I understand that they tried for about 10 years to have a child of their own, um, and then they turned to adoption. And, and of course, in, in 1958, uh, adoption was a very different kettle of fish to the adoption that we know today, the obstacles and difficulties there. So I was adopted from birth, effectively, six weeks, and I was completely oblivious to my birth connections and everything was kept very secret. So I landed into a Church of England vicarage with um, two slightly older but very doting parents who lavished me with lots of love and affection. Um, I was always brought up with the knowledge that I was adopted, so there was never a great traumatic revelation. Um, And I was cherished and supported by uh, the wider family, aunts, uncles, and some really brilliant godparents. So I felt very secure at that point and probably thoroughly spoiled. Um, And I never felt the need to seek out my birth mother, parents, which I know is is often a question that's asked when one's talking about adoption. 
<clears throat> the, um, the antidote to becoming a completely spoiled brat was a good dose of boarding school. Um, in the days when they were run by flossy-haired spinsters who I think were slightly out of touch with the shenanigans of teenage girls. Um, <clears throat> I can't say I particularly enjoyed boarding school, but I did make some amazing and wonderful friendships that have stood the test of time. And um, actually, I think boarding school was probably harder on my mother because apparently she cried for about two days every time I went back at the start of term. So basically, happy, balanced upbringing and adoring parents, which is setting the scene for the day when the world turned upside down. Um, at the age of 54, my mother developed breast cancer and it spread. Um, cancer treatments not being anything like as effective as they are today. Um, and she died in September 1975. Um, I was 17 and just at the start of my, my A-level year. I think the adults had probably tried to protect me from the reality of the situation quite a bit, and, 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 and largely my teenage, years, teenage life carried on as normal. Um, my parents had been away for a few days to a Christian house party in Devon. I, I know now that that was pretty much a farewell tour, and um, they saw friends and family to say goodbye, but what they hadn't expected was that two days after they returned, she had an embolism. I was out that afternoon with a friend, um, and I got home, and she was dead. And the shock was indescribable. Um, I, my world just ended as I knew it. Um, and even though I know my father did care deeply about others, he was also quite a formal person. I think, you know, war years, stiff upper lip was in the blood, um, and so my mother had been really the bridge between us. She, she'd been the absolutely epicenter of everything. Um, and I was completely and utterly lost. Um, I went back to school. I stumbled through A-levels, did really badly. Um, and then 12 months later, the next shockwave hit. My father remarried. Now, I can see in adult hindsight that he was only mid-50s, lonely, not used to looking after himself, and he had a lot of life before him. But at the time, to me, it, it felt like a real betrayal of my mother's memory, and you know, I wasn't remotely ready for a stepmother. So we've basically got grieving, stroppy 18-year-old meets new stepmother, and I think it's fair to say had had some issues. Um, she had had a breakdown when when Tony's father, her first husband, died, and she she didn't cope with stress terribly well. Um, she didn't actually like girls, which probably wasn't wasn't the greatest relationship. But basically, the result was regular flare-ups with my poor father trying to referee in the middle, um, and I think. It must have made my father sad, but my coping mechanism was basically just to stay away. Um, I retook A-levels. I got a place at Westfield College, London University, and I took 
every university holiday job going, so I had an excuse not, not to go back home. As a little girl of six, I remember sitting on my bed and asking Jesus to come into my life. But sadly, I think a fairly formal vicarage upbringing, despite my mother's love and boarding school experience, really made me look upon Christianity as just a complete set of rules. This was, you know, God was an austere figure of authority, um, and he was just waiting to tick me off as soon as I put a step wrong, which, which of course, was pretty often. Um, <clears throat> so I think the overriding feeling as I faced adulthood was just being completely adrift. You know, no, no anchor, no security. I looked for love in all the wrong places, had a string of unsatisfactory relationships, and at 26 married someone 10 years older than me, um, own business, nice car, seemingly exciting lifestyle, um, <clears throat> but who it also turned out was chronically insecure and really quite temperamental and had a drink problem. <clears throat> the last time I was here at Three Counties, actually, in October, you had an open service and someone was talking about an outer journey and an inner journey. Um, and for me at that time, the outer journey was fine. I appeared to have made it on the career ladder of sales and marketing, uh, freelance production and um, corporate events. And the outer me was sorted, confident, generally on track, had the sports car, the exotic holidays, um, and I had the sort of life that the world admires. The inner me was a totally different story. Um, I can remember waking up every morning and it was like the first five seconds was full of sort of hope. And then, and then this huge black cloud of reality would, would just descend. And, and I, you know, I was sort of, I'd faced another day. Um, walking on the eggshells of my marriage, I felt really, really weary with unhappiness and, and, and life had little, little joy in it. Every now and again I dabbled with going to church, but it was also always out of a sense of duty or guilt, um, and so it never, it never worked. Surprise. Um, I occasionally turned to prayer, but it was praying to a very distant God who I just didn't really know. Eventually, and I think inevitably, 13 years of unhappy marriage ended in divorce. I mean, life had really felt like a house of cards, and I was very aware that if I pulled one out from the bottom, <clears throat> the whole lot was going to come down taking me and everyone else with it. Um, I was also conscious that our family didn't do divorce, Church of England appearances to keep up and all that. Um, <clears throat> but when I finally plucked up courage and sobbed over the phone to my father that we were getting divorced, he was actually amazingly understanding and supportive, and um, I felt an overwhelming sense of relief. But <clears throat> at the same time, approaching 40 and still very, very adrift and facing a sort of start-again scenario... But our God is so good. 
Um, I know any prayer at that time was just a big cry for help, Um, but God had already started the rescue operation. So I went off on a skiing holiday, and I met Barry, naval submariner, and we married in 1999. Um, So then life gained stability and, and hope for better things, but not the deep security of a relationship with with a loving God. A friend asked me what brought me back to God, and the short answer is a bunch of keys. Um, There is a slightly longer version. Um, My husband Barry had a two-year posting as naval liaison officer with Rolls-Royce in Derby, and we'd recently moved into a very rural and slightly isolated rental cottage Um, just outside Matlock. And we also had a holiday home in Brittany at the time. And um, I was on my way back, my own car, trailer, dogs, you name it, I had it. Um, And I arrived in Plymouth off the ferry. It was quite late. And I started driving up to Matlock. And then it suddenly dawned on me that I had absolutely no keys to get into this rental accommodation. It then dawned on me that Barry was in Vancouver on a um, naval conference. The landlord (coughs) was on an overseas holiday, and I had absolutely no way of getting into this house. And for some reason, (coughs) I just just batted on. I mean, somebody later graciously called it faith. I just called it complete stubbornness. I was just in a kind of autopilot, I am not stopping, (coughs) but I, I did fervently pray at that point um so i arrived at the house really it was winter time as well it was really cold pitch dark um and then i'm thinking you idiot why didn't you deviate why didn't you stop at friends or family member along the way but but no so i tried the front door locked went round to the back door locked um, and vaguely thinking about breaking a window and thinking perhaps that wouldn't be terribly sensible. And by now I'm feeling really quite forlorn and, and pretty stupid. And just as I turned away from the back door, <clears throat> the moonlight came out from behind a cloud and on the back wall was a set of keys. And I just sobbed and I had this overwhelming sense of God's presence and love. I I was his little girl and he stuck these keys there for me because he knew I was going to need them. And he cared about the smallest detail of my life. And that for me, as daft as it seems, was a complete turning point. And it It actually was quite symbolic as well. This was the difference between being left out in the cold and the dark to to coming in, to, you know, come into the light, the warmth, the security of of God's love. So the keys incident really turned my attitude towards God into a relationship. Um, There was still a a, a bit more of of the journey to go to becoming a committed Christian, as they say, but um, that's when I started reading the Bible because I wanted to. Um, That's when I started to understand that Christ truly came to set us free 
and, and not to chain us to an impossible set of rules. And that's when I started to really enjoy being part of church life. And, and guess what? If you couldn't go one Sunday, God still loved us and the sky didn't fall in. And so I was blessed that, that Barry um, also was open to the idea of, of, of coming with me on this journey. He had absolutely no Christian grounding and it took him a bit longer to get it. Um, but he was baptised in the sea at Lee Abbey um, a few years ago, which, as you can imagine, was a day of huge joy. Um, and, and now life is a journey of relationship and discipleship with God. I mean, obviously the title of this talk is Learning to Trust. And while I certainly wasn't conscious of trusting God in those earlier years, I can see now that he never let go of me um, and that each dark time brought me to the place of grace and blessing that, that I'm in now. Um, Without being given up for adoption, I wouldn't have known the Christian love of my parents and extended family. If my father hadn't remarried, I wouldn't have gained all the wonderful step relations that I consider now to be very much my immediate family. Um, without the pain and turmoil of divorce, I, I wouldn't now be in a blessed and happy Christian marriage. I still don't understand why God didn't answer prayers for healing for my mother. Viv doesn't understand why God didn't answer prayers for healing for Tony. And I'm pretty sure there isn't anyone in this room who hasn't experienced some tragedy, some loss, some tremendous challenge in life. Um, my mother died on the 4th of September. And when my father turned to the Daily Light reading um, that evening... The passage began, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Um, and it continued from 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Dear friends, don't be bewildered or surprised when you go through the fiery trials ahead, for this is no strange, unusual thing that is going to happen to you. Instead, be really glad. Yes, that's the really hard part. Because these trials will make you partners with Christ in his suffering. And afterwards, you will have the wonderful joy of sharing his glory in that coming day when it will be displayed. Um, the Message Bible says, friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. I accept now the simple reality that I don't know all the amazing things that God's doing in my life, even, even when they're painful. Um, in 2012, there was a widely spread tweet by John Piper, CEO Desiring God. Um, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Um, I have a, a friend who is a young vicar's wife, lost a child in, in sad circumstances. And while obviously this was a terrible tragedy for the family and really agonizing, a really agonizing time, she was able to recognize that she could relate to other young mothers in a similar situation um, and reach out to them in a way that 
absolutely nobody else could with, with genuine concern and understanding, uh, total understanding of what they were going through. I don't think God plans for us to go through life as untouched automatons. He plans to walk alongside us through the bleak times with a really fierce love. Um, And he promises he won't leave us. So in the dark times, there's nothing else for it but to dig deeper into the trust bucket. Um, And that's when we move closer to God. Paul, um, in 2 Corinthians, talks about our time of distress resulting in God's richest blessings. Um, While thinking about this talk, I came across a a really good book. Um, It's simply called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Um, And at a time of great loss himself, he began a a thorough four-year, I think, Bible study on God's sovereignty and it, it completely changed his life. Um, and he shares how he became able to trust God more completely, even, even when life really hurts. Um, and he observes that it's the painful circumstances that we find ourselves in that are the ones that defy explanation. And before long, we begin to doubt God's concern for us. Um, and we ask why is God allowing this? What have I done wrong? Why didn't God heal? Why didn't God heal Tony, my mother? Um, and that's when we have to remember God's character. Lamentations three twenty one to 23 says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Um, Charles Spurgeon put it like this. God is too kind, sorry, too good to be unkind. And he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. One thing I've certainly learnt is that the only way to truly trust God, just as we trust those closest to us in life, is to have a close relationship with him um, through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that means listening to him, talking to him, and reading the guidebook that he's given us, um, a formula for, for learning to trust. So in closing, I would say one of the churches near us um, is in the dreaded Church of England interregnum period, and they've been interviewing for a new vicar. And their first interview question is, who are you? Who are you? This apparently has flawed one or two of the candidates. Anyway, who are you? Who are we indeed? And I would just love us all to be able to respond whatever the circumstances. I'm God's child. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm loved, cherished, accepted, valued. I have an eternal home and I trust my Heavenly Father to know what's best for me, even when it hurts so much that I can't make sense of it. Jeremiah 17.7 But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water, 
that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. So I hope and pray that you will all find that place of trust for yourselves. So thank you for listening and God bless you.